Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Master Historian Professor Jeremy Black. Professor Black is without a doubt the most prolific historian writing in the Anglophone world today, having written well over 150 books. And today we are discussing one of his newest books, A Brief History of London, published by Robinson. Welcome, Professor Black. Hello. Professor, uh, why did you write this book? Well, I wrote this book for two reasons, essentially. First, it comes in this series, A Brief History, which they're not that brief. There are about 80,000 words, but that's what it's called, A Brief History, in which, as you know, because we've discussed them, I've done a number of books and topics from slavery to to the history of Spain, the history of Germany, um, to that of Portugal. And um, London was one that, A, I wanted to write, and B, and, you know, listeners need to hear and understand this point, the publishers were willing to, to look at, to publish. And, you know, people often, when they are interviewed on the sort of programs that you very importantly uh, uh, take, you know, introduce, um, pretend that it's just their volition. Actually, it needs to be much more than that. So that was reason number one. Reason number two is that, uh, nearly two decades ago, I produced an enormous, heavily, very, very heavily illustrated history of London. And I thought it was time to produce one that was uh, shorter, more concise, more up to date, that addressed um, uh, unillustrated uh, at a much more reasonable price, and one that was literally could fit into somebody's pocket. What is your own personal relationship with London? Oh, uh, I was born in London. Uh, my parents are both Londoners. I was born in London. I grew up there. I went to what in England is called school, what in America would be called high school uh, there. And I remained there until I went off to university. And although uh, I followed my university career and subsequent working career and now in retirement elsewhere, um, I remain, I suppose, in part anchored in London. That's where my the majority of my family members live apart from a daughter in brooklyn and um also where i go to fairly regularly as anybody else would who's an academic doing research in the london archives and libraries was london an important trading center prior to the roman invasion of 43 a.d well, we don't know very much prior to the, the uh, Roman in, uh, Roman invasion, and uh, you know, we have um, evidence of human settlement, which I discuss in the uh, in the Thames Valley area. There were clearly Iron Age settlements, and there were uh, rich finds of Iron Age coins and objects. So that suggests 
that it was certainly an area of trading, but it was not in any way or any shape or form on the scale of what the Romans were to build. And in many senses, urban life um, really is something that begins with the Romans in, in Britain. So it wasn't a uh, entrepot in the way that, um, in a primitive, primitive sense, Cornwall was in terms of the trading of tin. That's an interesting question. I mean, certainly in the case of the trading of tin from Cornwall, which you mentioned, um, the tin as part of sort of Bronze Age civilization was of great value and was exported along the Atlantic world. And there's been good work on that. And as you know, it was referred to by classical writers. We don't have the same interaction with the outer world that is known of in the case of um, the Thames Valley. But obviously, river routes were important. And London in particular marks where you get the interaction of river routes and land routes, partly because there is a gravel um, deposit, if you like, uh, which reaches to the Thames there. And that provides a strategic location. Um, furthermore, the river was tidal to where the Romans built London. And obviously, therefore, you get the interaction between, as it were, river-only traffic and what you might call estuarine traffic. So, yes, you would anticipate the degree of trade that leads, as I mentioned, to the finds of Iron Age coins and objects and they've been found for example along the Thames foreshore at both Putney and Barnes so that's what's now in West London as well as you know they've been found remains in Bermondsey so that's what's now East London so I, I would be wrong to suggest there wasn't trade there all I was simply arguing it's is that it was not on the scale at all that one is to see with the Romans and getting to the Romans, how important large was London under Roman rule? Well, um, it was important. It was not a um, military base. Uh, the military bases changed, I and mean, briefly included Exeter, where I live, which was founded by the founded as a city by the Romans. Probably was settlement there beforehand, but you know, more particularly places like York, which was the capital for Northern Britannia and Chester. So it wasn't a military base in that sense, but it was absolutely important as the main commercial base. Um, and as a key port, it was more suitable as a, as a city and a governmental centre than what was the original official Roman capital, which was Colchester, which was to the northeast. So you've got both overseas maritime routes focusing on London as well as roads within Britain. So, for example, Ermine Street, which was the name of the road, to York, which is the basis uh, for, for the modern uh, you know, A1, uh, Watling Street, the basis um, of the modern A5 going up to Chester. So London was significant. I mean, the scale of it clearly changed. And, you know, we talk about Roman London. I mean, I think it's fair to say that... Um, that um, the archaeological record is sketchy for some periods. For example, the 4th century, it's much
much sketchier than it is for the second century. Uh, but London sees continuing development. You can see things like the third century Mithraeum, you know, the place where Mithras was worshipped, which was discovered in 1954 and is now, incidentally, for those people who listen, listening to this who visit London, it's accessible in the basement of the European headquarters of Bloomberg's. Um, so there, are, there were changes um, but essentially the city of London was based on what you might say or became the basis of what you might call uh, the modern uh, area of the city of London, the city corporation. And the wall and its gates, things like Aldgate and Ludgate, were the key fi- feature, not just for the Romans, but also for London's subsequent history and therefore an enduring physical legacy from the Roman period. The major change um, in terms of the topography of London, of the city of London, from the Roman period to today, is that um, the, um, the, uh, where, the, where London marches with the River Thames was extended southwards through processes of the uh, narrowing and deepening of the river. So that extent is different. Um, but other than that, um, there were aspects of the street pattern uh, that you will see to the present day. What do we know of London in the dark uh, ages or period of the 5th and 6th centuries? Well, we don't, that's a very good question. We know very little uh, about London in the 5th or 6th century. And on top of that, uh, not just that the evidence is fragmentary, principally the archaeological evidence, but also there can be contradictions between the written sources and the archaeological evidence. I think it's worth saying, and this is why histories of London do need uh, always supplementing, as indeed of any other long-standing major major, um, city, that there has been a lot of rescue archaeology in recent decades, um, and um, what that has done has improved our knowledge of the early uh, city. So, for example, number one, poultry, which is very close to the Bank of England, the excavations there provided evidence of 73 Roman buildings and thousands of artefacts. Um, or in 2006, there was restoration work at St. Martin's in the Fields, the church um, on uh, Trafalgar Square, and that discovered a massive late Roman sarcophagus, which appears to have been buried according to Christian practice. And again, um, slightly east of there, excavations in Covent Garden area in the 2000 produced finds from the early Saxon period. So it's a, you know, it's a work in progress, I think one could fairly say. But what seems to have been the play, to have happened is the Roman city, uh, which is in the area of the present capital city of London, the city area of London's corporation, uh, was substantially uh, deserted and it declined. But part of that was that settlement or the remaining settlement moved westwards along the banks of the Thames and also a bit inland towards the areas now we would refer to as the Strand and as Covent Garden. Now, in those areas, you get... um, um, what is a, a, a city or Saxon settlement known, known as Luden, Lundenvik, um, and that um, 
was not uh, the capital of any Saxon principality. In fact, it was a border um, uh, city. The, um, to the southeast, there was Kent, uh, which was the major um, state, royal dynasty, whatever you want to call it, of the uh, 6th and early 7th century. And to the north of it, northeast of it, there was East Anglia. So what you actually get is London is a border city, which may or may not have been advantageous. Um, but what certainly happens is it becomes a place of Christianization. Um, the early Saxon churches are built. Our early Saxon churches are built there, including. The first St. Paul's, which is sited within the Roman city uh, on the top of Ludgate Hill, was built of timber and burnt down in about 675. And then by the 8th century, in fact, in the 730s, the Venerable Bede, who's a Northumbrian monk, is able to describe London as a mart of many people, mart being a, a sort of a market. Uh, and by then, it is clear, by the 730s, it's clear that there was a reinforced embankment on the river near Charing Cross, which um, ships were beached there so they could be unloaded. And it's clear that it's of growing commercial importance. Now, the source of that is varied. Wool from the Cotswolds or woolen cloth were exported from London to um, to France and the Low Countries, um, and that uh, was to be one of the key elements of English trade and the importance of London uh, well into the early modern period. Um, and the last point I think I'd make is that London, although it wasn't the central town for Kent, Canterbury was, and that's why the Archdiocese was located there, London was important for Kent, but then when Kent was superseded and you get uh, uh, Mercia becoming the key kingdom in the 8th century, um, it's un uh, under offer, the ruler of Mercia, London's part of that, and it's the city that provides Mercia with, as it were, its links to the continent, and therefore that gives it importance. Now, when uh, exactly uh, did London become the capital city of what was once the Kingdom of Mercia, I'm sorry, Kingdom of Wessex, and which subsequently, after Albert the Great, became the Kingdom of England? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, there isn't a fixed capital uh, for a long time. And in fact, I would say for the Kingdom of Wessex, the major capital is Winchester, which is still the county town of Hampshire, and which is much closer to the centre of Wessex. London was more marginal to Wessex. But as you correctly say, London becomes of greater consequence, not least commercially consequential and economically consequential. And I think it's fair to say that when in the 11th century you get a series of foreign rulers, the Danish rulers from 1016 to uh, 1042, so that's King Canute and his two sons, and then from 1066, William I, William the Conqueror, then for them there is not an emotional commitment in any shape to a Wessex heartland or to Winchester. And I think on top of that, um, the Edward the Confessor, the 
Saxon ruler who had come between those from 1042 to 1066 had turned Westminster, which was to the west of London, into a kind of um, royal, royal um, courtly and sacral setting. Um, so you obviously got Westminster Abbey or the West, and the Westminster, and and there is the um, first royal palace on what is now what was then Forney Island, um, where the River Tyburn flowed into the Thames. So Winchester had really been replaced in many senses before William the First comes to power, but William the First sustains that. Um, and you could argue that London and Westminster were different parts of the same greater urban area. Uh, they're about two miles apart. The city of London was the commercial centre, the site of, more troublingly for the Crown, citizen power, but also, partly linked to that, the major fortress, the Tower of London, whereas Westminster was the royal and religious centre. And I think that interplay is quite significant, um, contrasting, incidentally, with Paris, where uh, the two centres, the two sites are really merged. And as you know, Parliament, is to be located in Westminster. Westminster, in many respects, becomes the national aspect in political and governmental and royal terms of London, whereas the city of London becomes the commercial uh, and um, uh, international aspect of Britain. So that's the reason why the Normans retained London as their capital? Well, I mean, I think those are factors. I mean, there are a whole host of other factors. I mean, um, the uh, importance militarily of the crossing place over the Thames, the importance of maritime links to the continent, um, the availability of buildings, royal buildings already, Westminster, the, the decision once the Tower of London is built um, to that is not just a fortress, but it is also a royal palace. So there are a whole host of reasons. And, and as, as you will know, Charles, there's no, you know, we're historians. There's no document that says here are 10 reasons why we are going to have the capital at London. And it is a gradual process. And it's worth pointing out that there are occasions during the Middle Ages when the Parliament meets outside London. Um, I think I'm right in saying, in fact, that goes up. The very last case of that, I think, is Charles II in 1681 during the exclusion crisis. And there are also occasions when the Crown resides outside London. In fact, for large periods of time during the Middle Ages, the monarchs spend more time uh, on the continent. I think I'm right in saying Richard I is king from uh, 1189 to 1199, Richard the, uh, Richard the Lionheart only spends six months in England. Now, uh, those are essentially in London, but, uh, you know, the other nine and a half years of his reign, he's abroad, either on crusade or, um, or in prison in Austria or in France. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that London is the capital or becomes the capital of the government of England, but it's a slower process to ensure that it becomes the major site of monarchy 
And uh, if you, partly it depends, therefore, as to how you define the capital, as to how you want to see it. In terms of population and commerce, how did medieval London compare with cities on the continent, such as Paris or Venice? Um, well, we don't have particularly accurate uh, population figures, but if you were to say for the... Um, I think you could probably say the population was over 30,000 by 1210, uh, that it was maybe 80,000, even 100,000, although there are arguments that extrapolates too much from the densely populated areas in the early 14th century. And then after the Black Death in the 1370s, it may have been down to about 40,000. Now, compared to at that period to Paris uh, and still even more Constantinople or compared to major uh, Italian cities, that would put it at a modest league. It's smaller than those. But on the other hand, it is far larger than any other city uh, in the British Isles, both within England, but also cities in Ireland or, or in Scotland. When did immigration from abroad become important to London's population growth? I'm thinking of, uh, obviously, the French immigration after 1066, and then in the late medieval period, uh, German immigration most heavily uh, centered on the steel yards, and then after the mid-16th century, Huguenot immigration. Yes. I mean, I think it's worth saying that London, partly because death rates were higher there, um, uh, you know, obviously infectious diseases are pushed up by propinquity, partly because death rates are higher there, London was always, deter was always dependent on in-migration. Now, most of that in-migration was from southern England and also East Anglia. So, for example, many of the 12th and 13th century members of the Mercer's Company, on whom research had been done, come, came from East Anglia. And some of these people were permanent migrants and some of these people were shorter-term residents. Now, as you correctly say, there is also what we might call foreign immig immigration from abroad. I think it's worth saying that compared to modern attitudes to nationality, there wasn't always the same degree of precision. I mean, if you think about it, if you're a Norman settling in um, England in the late, let's say, 1090s, whether for in church or state, um, you're actually just moving from one part of the dominions of the late 12th, 1090s, William II, to another part of William II's uh, domains. And I think that that element is an important one to recall. It's worth saying that a sense of nationality becomes more apparent in the later Middle Ages that, for example... Henry III's uh, use of so-called foreign favourites, uh, Poitevines from Poitou, for example, um, is an issue against him in the 13th century, that in the 14th and 15th centuries, there's hostility to the appointment of foreign clerics in 
uh, in the uh, English church and also to church revenues going abroad and their acts against alien, so-called, that's the term used, alien priories. So prior to the Reformation, which was both an international movement, uh, we are all Protestants together, but also a nationalistic movement, we have our distinctive type of Protestantism, um, prior to that there was already a sense of foreignness. Now, in terms then of foreign uh, immigrants being identifiable, I think I would say that in the 16th and 17th centuries, the, until the uh, Huguenot immigration, which, as you say, comes in 1685 onwards, prior to that, the principal group of immigrants coming from another country is from Scotland, although Scotland after 1603 is, uh, has a shared monarch. Uh, the Huguenots are a very important uh, contrast because um, although they are co-religionists, although incidentally not members of the Church of England, and I think that's an important point, although they are co-religionists, they come in a really quite significant number. I mean, it's generally argued that they take up about 8 to 10% of London's population by 1690. And there is some tension. There is violence. There is concern about uh, tension over housing and over jobs. But on the whole, the Huguenots are integrated pretty well. And by the, I think it's fair to say, by the mid-18th century, the Huguenots have been well integrated just as uh, migration of German poor Protestants, the so-called poor pal Palatines, um, in the 1700s, 1710s, 1720s, or Salzburgers in the 1730s. Those immigrations, again, work quite well. The principal group, I would have thought, that are recognisably, quote, different, whatever you mean by difference, is that you have a Jewish community which comes in, uh, uh, Oliver Cromwell changes the, uh, ends the formal uh, um, exclusion of Jews, and you have a Jewish community with Jewish synagogues. So, um, I mean, Cromwell had acquiesced in the return of the Jews, well, I think more than acquiesced, I would say, in some respects, he believed this would help to further the millennium, you know, the second coming of Christ. Uh, he did that in 1656. By 1662, there's already a, a synagogue with a congregation of 100, and that original synagogue is replaced in 1701 by one that's called Bevis Marx that's lasted to the present day. But with the exception of, of the uh, Jewish community, um, most of whom, until the large-scale immigration of Jews in the late 19th century, um, are fairly well integrated. With that exception, I would say it's actually quite hard to differentiate between what you might call immigrants and others in London in that period. So it's very different to the present situation. Percentage-wise, how much of the English population resided in London in the Elizabethan period? Probably, we got no census, national census till 1801, probably about 10%. What explains the outburst of theatre in London in the late 16th century? I think the outburst of theatre in London, and I, by the way, I hope readers might like to read my England in the Age of Shakespeare, published by Indiana, which talks about this at greater length. 
I think one can link it to a number of factors. Greater prosperity in the London area, which also, of course, was an enormously important market. The role of entrepreneurs, the extent to which the um, centre of theatrical life was south of the river in Southwark, which was a part of the greater London area, which was not under the, as it were, more puritanical and controlling authorities in the city of London. I think those are all significant alongside, obviously, the talent of a group of writers and a group of actors, plus the significance of the vernacular, the English language. Those are all significant for the public theatre. But there is also the overlap with the patronage of vernacular theatre by the royal court and by bodies like uh, the lawyers, the inns of court, which again contributes to the money coming into theatre. So theatre is seen as a very important uh, cultural activity in the end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century, and then ebbs, of course, uh, the, uh, partly because of Puritanism, partly because of other factors. Um, so we don't have the theatrical life of that scale again for a very long time in the, in the London area. Would it be true to say that London had a conflicted relationship with the Stuarts? I think it would be very true to say that London had a conflicted relationship with the Stuarts. Um, there were, of course, many London uh, groups who were pro-monarchy and who were not Puritans, but London was the centre of both uh, opposition to the Stuarts on political grounds and also overlapping uh, religious uh, hostility to what was associated with the Stuarts, which was variously high Anglicanism and Catholicism. And I think you, you, you see this culminate in the degree to which the Glorious Revolution, so-called of 1688 to 89, um, as moves towards its fi final setting in London, where there is enormous unpopularity for James II. How important to Parliament's victory in the English Civil War was its possession of London? That was very important. I mean, London gave it uh, the major financial and economic centre in the country, the major maritime centre, the major individual source of population, uh, the major fortified base, um, and a major industrial centre of manufacturing. So I think London is really significant, and ultimately um, the failure of the um, royal advances on London, which get as far as Brentford in the uh, first campaign of the war, but those, that failure is to be instrumental, just as um, you know the Jacobites in, under Bonnie Prince Charlie in 1745 uh, get as far as Derby and their march on London. I mean, London is the prime target of both um, insurrections and also of foreign invasions. If you're looking at invasion plans, whether it's Napoleon or Hitler, uh, they aim to gain control of the capital. How important was London to the rise of English commercial supremacy in the 18th century? I think London is very significant there. It's not the only port. Bristol and then Liverpool and in Scotland, Glasgow are major ports. 
But London is the major centre of investment. It is a significant port and it is a significant manufacturing centre, but it's the major centre of investment. It is, of course, also the seat of both government and parliament and therefore helps to ensure an emphasis on commercial factors in British policymaking, both domestic policymaking and with, with reference to foreign trade and indeed imperial policy. Uh, how truthful, um, historically speaking, is the London of Dickens? Oh, well, that's very, that's very interesting. Again, I've done a book on England in the age of Dickens. That's very interesting. I mean, Dickens, in a way, provides uh, archetypes, and many of his characters should be seen in that light. They're almost taking you back to... Bunyan and Pilgrim's progress. But, and I think it's also worth saying that, I mean, a lot of the London that he is writing about is the London of his childhood, his period in the Marshall, say, his uh, difficult early years. And in many senses, therefore, although the books may not be published um, until the 1840s onwards, they're actually often describing. Uh, his view of the situation in the 18-teens, 20s and early 30s. Allowing for that, and that there is a degree of built-in anachronism, therefore, in what he writes, I think he does capture a number of important elements. I mean, his description of the disruption brought to London by the uh, building of the railways is a very important uh, uh, additional factor to sort of modernist accounts of the railways simply in a positive light. So yes, I would say Dickens is significant and I myself have found him very useful as somebody to uh, refer to for a point of view, but a point of view of course is not the same as description. When did the London crowd cease to be an important force in British politics? I think the London crowd really ceased to be an important part of British politics in the 19th century. Uh, it was significant in Chartism. There were some very major disturbances later in the 19th century. And, of course, there have been disturbances recently, not least the poll tax riots in 19. Uh, 1990, which affected the Mrs. Thatcher uh, administration. But the practicality is London became a vast city. It was suburbanized. Much of it was middle class. Um, the nature of politics became, I mean, who knows whether this is going to last, but became in, May, in uh, mainland Britain as opposed to Northern Ireland uh, more peaceful. And therefore... Uh, the crowd ceased to be so significant from the 19th century. Uh, I'm sorry. What explains the rise of financial supremacy of the city in, in the 19th century? Financial supremacy of the city in the 19th century was based in large part about on the degree of liquidity of the British economy, on the, the Britain's role as the leading trading power in the world, with the largest maritime marine and the most extensive empire, about on the extent to which the dynamism of the American economy was linked to the British economy through finance um, and that meant that although America was obviously an independent state um, and an independent economy, the, the wider 
uh, amount of liquidity moving between London and New York strengthened both of them. Uh, also, I would argue that there was a relatively low regulation, uh, pro-business ethos that um, London was a centre for uh, many talented people coming in from both the empire and wider uh, wider field, that the British benefited with, um, uh, not least with uh, Australia and South Africa, from being on the gold standard and from the availability within the empire of large and growing amounts of gold. So I think there are many reasons for liquidity, but there is also the development of financial instruments and financial trading houses and banks who provide the infrastructure of the uh, entrepreneurialism that is so significant to underpin this liquidity. How did the Great War affect life in London? The Great War very much affected life in London. It became um, a city that was bombed by German first airship zeppelins and then aircraft. Uh, so you have um, uh, blackouts, you have anti-aircraft guns, you have the full panoply of war being waged on the home front to an extent not seen hitherto in Britain. Um, and obviously, uh, as the major centre of population in Britain, it's also a very major centre of casualties. Um, most families in, uh, in the London area either directly or indirectly suffered the loss of sons, husbands and fathers. Is the popular, or should should I perhaps say, bien pensant view of pre-multicultural London as a provincial and boring city, a true or correct, a true or false view? I, I wouldn't say that uh, pre-multicultural London was a boring city. I think it's a rather harsh way to think of the London of Shakespeare, or Dickens, of Dr. Johnson, or Oscar Wilde. No, I'd say that's a ludicrous assumption. Um, I think that there are different cultural impulses at the present day, and I think it's fair to say that although some of the uh, immigrant communities have produced enormous strength to uh, British culture, particularly Jews from continental Europe. Um, I'm not sure that you would say necessarily the same of, for example, Bangladeshis, but, you know, others may take a different view on the matter. When in the 20th century did London achieve its lopsided hegemony in British life? Well, you're absolutely right that there is in Britain, as there is in France vis-à-vis -vis Paris or in the United States vis-à-vis -vis the Beltway or the coasts, a, a language of anti-the metropolis. And in part, that stems from a reasonable, um, a reasonable perception of the way in which groups linked to metropolitan interests have tended to grab control of the privileges and profits of the state. And as the state has become more important culturally, things like national broadcasters or financially, the tax take, so a disproportionate amount has focused on London. So London, for example, takes a disproportionate amount of cultural investment, transport investment, investment in the National Health Service, etc., etc., etc. That is absolutely true. Um, I think it's fair to say that it was 
uh, ever thus, in a sense, in that with about 10% of the population for 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, I think it's fair to say London was disproportionately significant then. Um, What you could argue, I would argue, is that industrialization from the late 18th century and more particularly in the 19th century increased the relative significance of cities outside London, particularly Manchester, Birmingham and Glasgow, and that to an extent what one's talking about when one's referring at the present moment to London being out of equilibrium, if you wish to use that term, is a a redressing of that. Um, But as I've said, there are other factors, and in particular the way that the the privileges and profits of the state have largely gone to the benefit of uh, particular particular groups, and most of which focus on London, that helps to encourage this sense of hostility. How has COVID-19 affected London, life in London? Um, Well, it's generally argued that COVID led to a movement of those who could afford it um, uh, among the wealthy out of London, helping to drive up property prices elsewhere because there was so much wealth tied up in property in London. Less Less of an impact, obviously, among the poorer communities in London. Um, So yes, I think it has had that effect. And on top of that, there's been a marked decrease in commuting and an increase in so-called working from home. I say so-called because not everybody actually works particularly hard when they're working from home. And what that has done has um, affected the relative significance in London itself, between the centre and the suburbs, and then in the greater London area or the southeast as a whole, between London and uh, out, outlying areas. So that, for example, if in the past you commuted from Brighton or Canterbury uh, to London, now you might spend your week living in Brighton or Canterbury or just go up for the day or just for an overnighter. So that, I think, has had a significance more detrimentally, I mean, you know, that's obviously to do with London, more detrimentally, not only has this distorted um, property markets elsewhere with enormous problems that that causes in a state, in a country which um, is very much affected by national age scales and all the rest of it, but also you could argue that uh, there was a disproportionate emphasis on the supposed threat from COVID. I mean, every single day of COVID, the population of the country rose. And that the decision to close down the economy for two years has had really serious consequences, which remain now affecting uh, many families, many individuals, and indeed the ability of the state to fund people's expectations. And you could argue that what, to an extent, was a specific moral panic, if you like, health panic, but also moral panic linked in particular to the ability or inability of certain hospitals to cope and disproportionately high death rates among some communities um, in London was, as it were, enforced on the rest of the country in a unnecessary and undesirable.
desirable fashion. Obviously, not all listeners will agree with me on that, but I think in the perspective of hindsight, we're going to probably argue that the lockdown was disproportionate. We're going to argue that COVID was not demographically a key event. And we're going to actually wonder at what on earth led us to this, to the, to the outcome that, that resulted. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? Oh, I think I've tried to convey the fascination and interest of what is not just a city, but also a set of communities and a wider society of many millions and how that has developed and its importance, not just in British history, but in global history. I mean, the difference of my history of London is it's not a history of London, which tells you just about, shall we say, Clerkenwell or the city of London or Camberwell. My view is that London's history is important because of what it means elsewhere, both elsewhere within the British Isles and also elsewhere in the world. And I find uh, that that is the way in which one should always approach the history of a particular area, look at its wider resonances. On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Black, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Black. Thank you very much. And listeners may also be interested to know that my History of Britain in a 100 Maps will be out in time for Christmas.